It is now my pleasure to introduce the introducer. <laughs> Here she is. Her name is Marianne Dougherty. She is a debut author of a, of a beautiful, beautiful book that she sold out of, so I'm not going to tell you about it. But she might mention the title when she's up here. I'll give her that prerogative, and you can order it on Amazon or wherever else people order books. Uh, she has got a beautiful sense of humor. She uh, spent a lot of her life in the Pittsburgh area, so she's got some rough edges, which I enjoy. Uh, she really cares about people. She's got a good heart. She loves her two daughters, and I love her. Please welcome Marianne Dougherty. Everybody, we're nearing the end, not the bitter end, just the end, and we'll all be sad. Suddenly, we'll be home and like, what happened? You know, we're not with people. The first conference I ever came to, I left, and I felt so sad the next day, and I couldn't figure out why. And I called this girl I met at the conference, and I said, "Why do I feel like this?" She goes, "Because it's like all week, you're like with all of the. I don't know if she word used the word turkeys, but it's like if you're all turkey together, and you all get it, you're like a tribe, and then you leave." and you're now the oddball turkey with a bunch of geese or something, and you don't fit in, and she was right. And um, this conference is special. Um, it's, it's not snooty, it's not uppity, it's a very, people are respected here, you'll make lifelong friends here. I did, and I, I love this conference, so I'm glad you're all here. So back in probably, I think it was 2019, so it's been four years, I read a review of a book called On Swift Horses somewhere. I, always look at book reviews, and I thought, okay, it got such a glowing review that I looked it up. I went, looked it up, and I, I started, I thought, oh. Like, I knew the minute I read it, this is a literary writer who's just, it's not boring, it's like entertaining, it's really deep, but she can write. And I loved that book, I read it, and then I found her. I found, since she teaches at Stanford, I was able to get her, I could find her there, which is really great because often when you're looking for writers, I discover somebody, their first book, and you have no idea how to get a hold of them if they don't have a website or if, they're, if they have a few books and then they have a publicist or something, forget it, you can't get past them at all, you can't get to these people. But she answered my email graciously and I invited her and she said yes, so it was like, oh, this is great. And then COVID came, so we canceled. And then I said, don't worry, you'll be on top of the list next year. She said, okay, next year, sorry, we have to cancel again. There could more COVID. So three times I canceled and she graciously, I don't even believe she's still here, that she's here because four times it's like, really? You know, she said, yes, I'm coming. I was like, oh, whew. So for four years I've been trying to get her here and you're gonna love her. This book is wonderful. And uh, it's actually been made into a movie as we speak with a really great young cast, good director. I think she said the producer did Nomadland. And what was the other one? Another goodie. Oh, Call Me By Your Name. They, the producer did this. So this movie has going to be, I would think it's going to be good. I told her, well, I'll see you at the Oscars. I'll be watching from the couch. I'll wave when I see you there. And, uh, but anyway, you're going to love it. She's going to introduce you to her book. And then I hope when we are... When she's done, she's going to do a Q&A &A at the end. So think of anything you want to ask her about writing. She's obviously a great writing teacher, but a good writer. And uh, she'll answer questions. And then we'll go downstairs, and she'll sign books. So please go down there and get her book. You shouldn't leave without it. You'll be sorry if you do. 
And so, no further ado, I'm going to introduce you to Shannon Poopal. I've been sitting here trying to think of a good Anton Chekhov list joke. <laughs> but I couldn't think of one. So my joke is that. Um, you should, please do feel free to lie on the floor. If you want to, I won't, I won't take it personally. Um, thank you so much to Marianne, who, uh, I mean, I did say yes several times, but you also persisted. So thank you for, for thinking so much of me that you wanted to get me here. I really, uh, I'm flattered and, and grateful for that. Um, and, and I'll also just say, you know, thank you to all of you for, for being here and um, for making this such a big part of your lives, making writing and books such a big part of your lives. Um, it's uh, such an important art form, this um, thing that we do, storytelling, um, because, you know, we do, we do live in an era where the truth is sort of up for grabs. And um, storytelling is one way um, to tell the truth, whether you're telling about facts or not. So um, thank you all for making this such a big part of your lives. Um, and thanks, too, to the Chaucer's folks for setting up tables and things. You know, we sort of live and die by local bookstores. So um, that's um, such an important part of what we do. Um, and local booksellers who read more than anybody else. Um, so I thought I'd just say a few things about the, the book and sort of the experience of writing a first novel. Um, and then I'll read a little bit from the book itself. Um, I'm excited to do this because it did come out in 2019 and um, I haven't done much, I haven't done very many events for it in the last few years, partly because of COVID and partly because you do a bunch when the book first comes out and then you kind of don't. Um, and so it's nice for me. I'm gonna read some things that I don't usually read just for kicks. Um, so that'll be nice, I think, for me, um, hopefully for you. And, and then I'll just sort of open it up and answer any questions that you all have about the book or about the writing process or um, anything you'd like to know. I'm happy to, to answer. So um, I feel like I'm in teacher mode a little bit. And so usually at this point, I like give the rundown of what we're going to do in class. And then I say, does anybody have any questions before I start? <laughs> does anybody have any questions before I start? No? OK, great. Um, they never do either. So, um, so, you know, I will say, I think there's probably a number of you who have either written a first novel or are in the process of writing one or in the process of thinking about writing one. And I, I know for me that um, writing a first book is really about getting some kind of sustained pleasure out of going down the wrong path and turning around. Um, you know, when you start writing a novel, um, or anything, but particularly a novel, there's just nothing in front of you but open doors. Um, and that's a really pleasurable and sometimes kind of anxiety-producing place to be where you feel like, well, I could take any path and you know, all these paths are available. And then the deeper you get in, the fewer doors there are um, and the more chances you have to take the wrong one. And knowing when you've taken the wrong one and, and being very willing to kind of turn around and retrace your steps and go back out to the sort of main hallway is, I think, probably the, the, the 
most important thing there is, and figuring out how to get some kind of sustained pleasure out of that, um, I think is one of the most important things that I learned. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, in, in our age, nothing's ever actually lost. You know, most of us write on word processors of some kind or another, and so you just save it, and you put it somewhere else, and maybe it goes in another book, or maybe it goes in a love letter, or, you know, maybe it goes in your obituary. You know, it goes somewhere. Um, so nothing's ever lost. Um, you know, for me, one of the pieces of advice I got early on in my life was, um, you know, if you think you're going to write a lot of books, which of course I was young and I thought I would, um, I still hope so, um, is, you know, don't write a memoir, your first book, because you'll use all your best material. <laughs> I don't know if this is true, and for those of you who've written memoirs and it was your first book, like, don't take this to heart, but um, I thought that was interesting, that often what we start doing is sort of excavating the self in some way and excavating our own experiences, and that's part of what we need from the process of writing a book. Um, and sometimes that's exactly the right door to walk through, and sometimes it's not. So for me, this book really started as a kind of excavation of my own life and some of the things that I had experienced. And it had, interestingly, a first-person um, sort of omniscient narrator who was like narrating from way in the future about um, family members who she knew but maybe didn't know very well and sort of inventing lives for them. And I wrote this way for years into this novel. And I was struggling with it and really pushing against it in a way that didn't feel good. I wasn't having that sort of sustained pleasure of writing the book. And, and I thought maybe that was just, well, maybe it's the wrong book. Maybe I'm not really a writer. Um, maybe I should go back to bartending. Like what, you know, something. Something's wrong here. And then I thought, well, she doesn't, it does, this doesn't have to be my narrator. I get to do whatever I want. Um, and so I made a folder on my computer that was called Death to Eileen. And I took all of that material and I put it in there. And then I woke up the next day and I started with a new idea in mind and everything was better. And the book sort of unraveled from, from that point and the writing was pleasurable and it was much easier. Um, you know, there were still difficulties, but that was a, a big risk and it felt like a horrible thing to do to sort of kill off your, I mean, who, who kills off their narrator, right? You're really in trouble then. Um, but I did, and it was much better after that. And the number of people I know who've written first novels who've told me that a thing that they realized several years into the writing of it was that there was something really big about the structure or the characters or the plot or the timeline that was just wrong. And they had been pushing against a locked door for a really long time, and once they figured out what that was, um, and you know, worked their way back out and started again, then then it was um, no longer a project that felt it needed to be abandoned, and no longer an identity, which for many of us, being a writer is no longer an identity that felt it needed to be abandoned. So, that was something important that I learned in the writing of this book. Um, so, I don't want to reiterate too much of what the wonderful Marianne has written here in the little Q&A that we did. 
So I won't actually say too much about sort of what the book is about or what inspired it, because I think a lot of that's in here, and also we can kind of handle that, you know, if you have questions afterwards. Um, so I think I'll just kind of read a little bit, and then we can just talk, which sounds better. Okay, good. So I'm going to read, this This book is divided into two, two third-person narrators. One is Julius, um, who, from the part that I'm going to read from the novel has been in Las Vegas for a while and fallen in love with a man named Henry, and they're running a sort of elaborate blackjack cheat, um, which they're quite successful at. Um, he has a job at this point in the novel. Casinos before electronic surveillance used to have these sort of catwalks, like scaffolds, in the ceiling, and you'd look down these um, sort of, like, is it, is it a, it's a one-way mirror when you can see through, but they can't see up. Um, and you know, watch the people on the casino floor below. So I'll read that section, and then I'm gonna skip way ahead and read something that I don't usually, that I haven't usually read. But the, the other um, point of view character is a woman named Muriel, who's living in San Diego um, with her husband. She's a newlywed. And she um, has been secretly betting on horses and she at the Del Mar racetrack. And in this section, she's gone to a sort of underground gay bar. Um, she doesn't really know why yet, but she's, but she's gone there. So I'll read those two just short sections. In Las Vegas, it is not possible for any man to forget where he is. Often Julius has considered this. Perhaps on some mornings in winter, or late summer as it is now, when the light comes in low but just as instantly, a man might wake on the 10th floor of some hotel and in the still dark room confuse for a moment the walls or the slant of light for the white plains of his youth. But such confusion could happen anywhere away from home. As soon as his head returned to him, he would see the lighted figures against the hotel drapes, the names of casinos and the price of a buffet dinner. And if he stands to part the drapes, he will see the far mountains shadowed into landscape, the clouds cast down onto them, then the once green expanse of the ancient meadow that gives the city its name, then the strips of buildings and their peculiar grace. He might eat, he might work, he might find a store and buy a pack of cigarettes, but he has no need of other things. Booze will be offered to him and sex, and he won't need a toothbrush or a bar of soap. In other famous cities of the West, with their own famous geography, their memorable architecture, a man might go about an ordinary day and never think about where he is because he is too busy trying to get what this other city gives up willingly. For two weeks, Julius and Henry spook the blackjack tables at the Boulder Club an hour at a time. Julius sits at the sloppy dealer's table and Henry sits at the table behind the dealer's back. Henry watches as the dealer corners up the whole card and then he judges the other cards on the table and the money in play. He drinks and laughs and sends Julius signals and Julius plays accordingly. Sometimes there is little to win and sometimes the tables are too crowded and in any case they do not stay together long. As they learn the cheat's intricacies, they run things quietly, cashing out no more than $30 a night. Of course Henry could make more with another more daring man but this is the delicate agreement they've made. 
Each night, Julius worries that above the tables, a man in a catwalk watches them sit across from each other, that he studies them for palms and marking, for playing two sides against the men to their left, who will draw after them. But Henry's little gestures, the small differences in his laughter, these are things only Julius knows. After a week, they have $200 between them, and they each buy a coat and tie, and Julius has his boots shined. Henry hails a cab on Fremont Street and hands the driver a 20 to take them all the way to the Aces High Casino in Boulder City, where they eat steak on an open terrace overlooking the dam. A piano man plays loose ragtime, and all around them are couples and businessmen and old women in lace gloves drinking champagne, and they are among these people as birds are among trees. After dinner, they walk across the dam on Route 93. The lighted roof of the Aces High rises behind the wall of stone. The sky is so dark it plunges into the massive lake and all the way to the bottom like a cataract. Julius imagines that the stars sit among the bones of men there on the lake bed. He and Henry stand a long time looking from east to west across the canyon where the concrete is pressed by the rock into the curved shape of the dam. It seems to be held there by pressure and nothing else. Henry says, it almost looks like it's been here forever and will be forevermore, Julia says. They look at each other and like lovers everywhere take such claims about the world to be their own fortune. Henry glances around and moves back into the shadow of a pinstock where the darkness is complete and Julius moves into the dark with him and kisses him. And though both men pull away then and leave the shadow one at a time, there is still some victory in it. Back at the aces, they dance and drink until the dawn starts to leaven the vast desert. Once at home, at the squaw, they bounce the bed so hard the manager comes around the corner and knocks at the door, and Henry calls out in a convincing falsetto that he ought to go to the pictures or get himself a gulch lady if he's so hard up for love. At least my loneliness don't make no noise, girl, the man hollers through the door, and Julius and Henry laugh behind their hands until he leaves. In the new quiet demanded of them, they touch slow and easy, but inside Julius is wholly gone. If he could turn his love into a noise, it would be the noise of a bomb in the far desert, one that reaches the city in delay. The dawn sight of the cloud drawing up is the spectacle and the miracle, but still at its distance could be a mere trick of the eye. Sometimes whole minutes later comes the convulsive thud, as if the sound was the sound of time passing and could not be rushed, and only then is the bomb real. No man could make that sound, and no man could stop it. It is the sound of time itself coming forward and catching them where they stand. Oh. Thanks. And I'll read a little bit from, from Muriel's perspective. In the afternoon, she wakes and drives to a gas station where she buys a candy bar and washes her face in the bathroom and fixes her hair. She strips off her stockings and shoves them in her purse. She's brought her best skirt and she pulls this on over her bare legs, tucks in her blouse and dabs a bit of perfume behind her ears. Then she drives to the hotel with the covered window and waits. The same man in his lowered hat stands in the doorway and Muriel watches him and the entrance a long time while behind the sun lowers over the calming sea. By six o'clock, Gail has not appeared. Muriel should be frightened, but she feels better than she has all day. 
She hears the train passing at a distance across the seawall, and the sound is a comfort, proof of ordinary life. She wonders how long she should wait. Along a back channel of shrubs, she sees a man emerge as if from a doorway, arms at his sides as he looks around. From the south end, a second man in a light suit keeps along an untrimmed line of poplars. Behind the branches, the horizon seems to sink, the spongy orange light of this city buoyed above the tree line so that the men appear as shadow play against the gray wall of trees. For a moment, both men wait at this distance. Then they wave to each other and walk toward the hotel, and the man in the hat nods them inside. Muriel steps out of the car and smooths her skirt and retucks her shirt and walks down the street with her arms crossed tightly over her purse. She pauses outside the heavy door of the hotel, and the man in the hat looks her over and laughs. Over the boarded inset window is pasted a notice of police raid, but with the edges scraped away and the word police crossed out, an air written above it. At the bottom corner, in another, in another hand, the word shelter. If you say so, honey, the man says and opens the door. Inside, the hotel is shabby but done up in elegant colors. The lobby is shallow but wide as a ballroom. Below her, a, flank, a plank floor trod in sand and ash. Past an empty desk, a set of armchairs with a table between them. Beyond these, a string of lights along a banister leading, up the, uh, leading upward. Already the bar is full of sailors and other young men in cuffed jeans and striped derby jackets. The windows are painted black on the inside, and the air is coastal and sticky and gray with smoke. Muriel sees no other women. She sits at the bar with her back to the door, and when the bartender comes, he asks if she know where, knows where she is. I'm meeting someone, she says. Are you now, he says. I am. Here I thought every night was the same, the man says. She asks for a stinger, and when he brings it, she thanks him, and he curtsies and smooths his hair back. She sits a long time with her knees pressed against the underside of the bar. Several times the door opens, and in the cut of light is another man, and not Gail. The bar in the lobby fills slowly, with men dressed in dark clothes. One man approaches her and asks if she is lost, but he stands at some distance as if she might be a kind of decoy. She asks him if he knows a man called Julius, or another called Rosie, and when he shakes his head, she makes a pinching motion and says, what about a little gun? And the man laughs and says, plenty of those here. Not long after this, the lights are lowered and the men begin to come together. Someone scratches on a record. There are no clocks and no windows, so she can't tell what time it is, but she's had three drinks and it must be nearing eight. Perhaps Gail waited outside, or perhaps she is still waiting, but probably she never showed. Soon the men begin to dance and whisper and hold each other in the powerful darkness. A man in a pinstripe suit stands watch at the door. Another stands behind the old lobby desk with his hand on a telephone. The man next to her has turned away, telling a story about his father. It is so dark that Muriel can't tell if the man is talking to himself or someone else, and as she listens to the story, it could be anyone's. Perhaps that's what the darkness has done turned every story here into every other. I'm gonna skip ahead just a bit. A young man turns to Muriel and holds out a hand and says, when in Rome? If this were Rome, I'd be someone else, she says, and knows the drinks have landed. That isn't how it works, the man says, and leads her to the floor. Maybe if I were someone else, this would be Rome? The man's smile is pitying, but gentle, patient. All I mean is, 
Shouldn't I be a man, she says. You're fine, darling. They dance to that song and the next, and Muriel wonders where Gail might be and with whom, and if she'll ever see her again. The man has dark eyes and freckles nearly black against the night, and his cheeks are still full and tender. She leans close and places her forehead on his shoulder. He dances with her the way she'd seen men dance at weddings with their younger cousins, yet when she looks at his tilted cheek and his neck, she thinks that from a distance they must look like lovers. She thinks the word lover. She thinks of Julius beneath her window that Christmas in Kansas, and she lets this thought widen out until the loneliness she feels seems to involve even the music, whose tones begin to lower and slow until every song is an elegy and the night itself, which is now growing long. I'll stop there. Thanks. So I'm, in, I'm in just interested in what questions you all have. Be happy to talk. Oh, it's 1957. 1957. Yeah. And, the, and I forgot to say this, too, but the bomb that they watch at the end of that first section, they used to do atomic tests in the desert. And um, this was something I came across early on in my research that I thought, this, this has to go in a book somewhere, that they would go up to the roofs of these casinos at like 5 o'clock in the morning, and people would have champagne and, you know, in their finery and watch these atomic tests in the distance. I know, such hubris. Yeah. So yeah. just to follow up, that last scene was, was actually quite beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I'm very curious as to how you, you know, got the construct of that in your head, and I guess it was mm. through some research. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine that there's a lot of documentation about that stuff. Yeah. I, I mean, one of my goals was to try to kind of put in almost a documentary way, like mostly through invention, but also through some research. And there are a number of good um, sort of nonfiction histories now of sort of like gay life in cities in, I mean, the early part of the 20th century in particular. But, but mostly it was a kind of active invention. I thought like, well, I know this from like this place in New York and, and this, from San Francisco, and you know these places must have existed, but you know we don't really have a record of them. Um, so one of the things that I really wanted to do was try to make a record. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Can you explain what the title "Odds with Horses" means? Like why the book is called it? Well, another thing that happens when you write a novel is that you have to come up with a title for it. And it had a working title that was, which I will go to my grave. Um, and, you know, when it was actually done and we thought, well, we're going to send it out and we're going to see if anybody wants to, to buy it and publish it, um, you know, my agent wrote me and said, we really need to come up with a new title at this point. And so we went back and forth for months. You know, I would like send her things in the middle of the night and she would write back and say, no, that sounds like a... Like a, that sounds like a very bad mystery novel, or um, you know, that sounds like a made-for-television movie, or something like that. Um, and there's a section in the book when Julius has gone. Julius and Henry have been sort of caught at their blackjack cheat, and 
um, Julius goes to Tijuana to, to look for Henry, and he, there's this section at the very end of the chapter where they, um, where Julius is sort of thinking back on his own childhood. And he remembers a, a, a woman handing him um, the book of, like a leaflet of the book of Isaiah. And um, I thought, well, maybe there's something there. And so I went back and read the book of Isaiah, which if you haven't done lately is something you could do. Um, and there's this, there's this passage that, that, that just struck me that said, you know, it's basically God talking, but, you know, God saying something like, you know, if those who flee, we will pursue them. You know, those who attempt to escape, we will sort of hunt them and find them and, you know, some old God stuff. And, and it says, you know, we will flee on swift horses. And, and I thought, oh, well, that's really interesting. And there's a lot of horses in the book. There's, there's one horse in particular that Julius gives as a gift to Muriel, kind of in the middle section. And I thought, well, that, that ought to work. And, and so I sent it to my agent. And she said, no, I, yeah, I think that'll work. So that was how. It was like I had to kind of go back into the book for what was already there. Yeah, and, and kind of think about it in a way that was, you know, you, you're coming up with a title and you're trying to, like, Okay, it's going to be on the front of the book, like in a bookstore. You want people to buy it, and you know, how do I how do I make this kind of snazzy in a way that people are going to be interested in? Um, and I'm not very good at that. A lot of us writers aren't. You know, we're not thinking about that. So I had to go back and see what the book had to say about it. And that was how. Yeah. Well, I didn't do the cover. Um, and it was interesting because this is kind of the first moment in writing a book. Oh yeah, this is sort of the first moment in, in writing a book where you see how someone else has interpreted it. Um, when you get from your publisher like what they think the cover should be. Um, so it's an, it's an atomic bomb and it's the, the top is the, the top is roses. And I was in the San Francisco airport and I, you know, got it on my phone, and I was looking at it, and I was like, "What the fuck is this? <laughs> what are they? What are they trying to do here?" Because I was expecting, like, the, the 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 French edition has this like beautiful sort of American like West landscape with these horses, and I was like really expecting that. Um, but I, I did. I came I came to love it. It was sort of like. You know, it was it was unexpected, and you have to. I think you have to. I think one of the things they were thinking in their sort of infinite capitalist wisdom was like you really have to look at it to figure out what it, what it is. So already you have to spend maybe more time with the book <laughs> in the bookstore than than you thought you were going to. Yeah. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about your process? How long it took mm. to write it? Did you? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, processes are sort of like fingerprints, right? I mean, yeah. that everybody's is different. I think um, mine was just I found be because I had been given this sort of very lucky thing, which was a couple of years um, supported by Stanford just to write. Um, I felt I had been sort of legitimated, right? I mean, you, you sort of feel like, oh, okay, other people think maybe you should try to do this with your life. Um, 
And so I just went for it. You know, I had this time and I didn't have, I mean, I still taught a little bit and I, I had some other things like you do when you have a life, but I didn't have children and, um, you know, I didn't have anybody else to take care of. And so I just sat down every day and did it and found that that was just uh, an enormous privilege and um, really pleasurable. So, I mean, one, for me, like the thing that I always say is just like, you just sit down and do it every day. There is no other process. Um, and, you know, I think to start with, I felt I needed to slow myself down and so I would write everything out by hand and then I would, um, you know, at the end of the day I would transpose it like into a Word document or whatever and, and I found that the process of doing that kind of, it slowed me down to begin with and then it made me think about it again in another way um, and sort of used a different part of my brain to transpose it and I found that really useful and then but that's really slow <laughs> that takes forever so at some point like kind of once the thing was off the ground then I started just you know sitting at the computer and writing and um, you know I had like the Steve Jobs principle too which was like I, I just put on the same thing every day you know it was it was more or less a black turtleneck and some jeans like Steve Jobs just like that's not on my mind you know, I'm not even worried about what I look like. No one can see me. And I tried to remind myself that no one was waiting for this book. Like, no one's waiting. Um, for a first book in particular. Like, the, no one's going to knock on your door and say, look, we really need this thing. You, you kind of wish they would. Um, but they're not going to. Um, and, and I tried to take my time. And, and like I said at the beginning, be really willing to make mistakes and to accept failure but not defeat. So I think there, um, that's always a hard question to answer. I mean, I think from the time I wrote the first paragraph of what ended up becoming this book to the time like you could buy it in a store was probably six years. Um, but, you know, I didn't work all of that time. I, I'm, I feel like I'm, you know, I teach Stanford students who are very serious. And I'm often trying to tell them, like, you know that rest is also work. Like, you have to rest. Um, your mind has to rest. Like, if you're constantly reaching out, trying to grip this thing and get control over it, like, you know, you're just going to write like a little terrier. I love terriers. Um, you know, you're just going to be like digging a hole in the ground to nowhere. Um, so I, you know, it took six years. Some of that, it was an editorial for like 18 months. So once it had been sold to the publisher, then, you know, I went back and forth with the editor for quite a while. And then it just sort of sits there and like they, you know, they call the lawyers and get the copyrights for songs that you've quoted and things like that. So, you know, there's weird steps. Yeah. Um, about how often do you write per day? And then um, how do you shake or what tips do you have to slap yourself on the hand when you start merging into expository? Oh, the expository? I love the expository. I mean, if we could just stay in context forever, I'd be so happy. 
right? Like, I mean, you know, not all of us are Melville, I guess. Like, you can't, you know, I think you have to have a really good story in order to buy yourself seven pages about, like, how the cream goes in the coffee. Um, so I think, you know, you need to be chasing, like, a giant mythical whale, and it needs to be existential and all of that stuff, and then you can write about it, but... Um, I think at some point, when you've done it long enough, you can feel the, you can feel the sort of sagginess of the prose. You know, I think it's always a good rule of thumb to sort of earn the time that you spend not propelling the plot forward. Um, you know, do you all know the origins of the term cliffhanger? No? Um, well, it was, there was a, I think it's Thomas Hardy. I'd have to look this up, but it was serialized, you know, whatever that is, the, you know, 18th century. Um, and there's a story, and he ends the, the, the section of the serial, so like the chapter, as it was then. He ends the chapter with a man literally hanging from a cliff, right? And so everyone's then waiting for the next installment of this magazine to come out or whatever, so they can read the rest of the story. Does he live? Does he fall off the cliff? You know, does he climb his way back up, like, et cetera? And the next part of the installment begins with like, you know, 17 pages about flowers. And you're willing to read it, right? Because this part of your mind is like stuck on the guy hanging on the cliff where you're like, okay, got it, got it. Oh, that's pretty. No, I like that. Oh, you got to say something you wanted to say about like, you know, what it's like to be alive and, you know, all this other stuff that novels can do because you're thinking, is the guy going to make it off the cliff? So I think you think about the man on the cliff when you're in that, when you know you're, you're in expository mode um, and you think, how long have I, how much time have I bought myself to be here, right? Is the reader captured by something um, mysterious enough that's part of their mind still chewing on it so that I can do this other thing? Um, at the moment, the first part of your question, at the moment, um, I don't write anything at all during the day. But that's gonna change, because I've just finished a spring quarter that was pretty gnarly. Um, so I spent a lot of time teaching the last three months, but um, now I've got three and a half months off. So probably I'll spend, you know, five or six hours a day at the desk if I can, in between tennis, which is my other passion. If anyone has tennis questions, <laughs> I'd love to talk about tennis. Yeah. Yeah. As a teacher, I don't know that they allow you to be on social media. Well, I teach adults. I mean, technically, they're adults, oh, so okay. I could I could be on social media. Um, I'm just not. Oh, okay. um, I, you know, that is that's part of the business now, yeah. for sure. And you know, I think especially if you don't have a big, powerful publishing house behind you, who's job it is to do publicity for you, then I think it can be really useful. But I, I, I also think, like, this is my one precious life. I don't want to spend it that way. I don't want to spend it performing for people I've never met and will never meet. And, you know, um, people who want to buy the book will buy the book. 
whether I posted a really pretty picture of something I ate for dinner or not. <laughs> um, but I do think it is useful. And I think if it's something that you get energy from, right, which I think a lot of people do, if you get energy from being online in that way, then I think it can be really helpful. Yeah, and luckily they, you know, they did a lot of that publicity, which was great. I mean, I did events and things, and I like these sorts of things, like being in a room with real people. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it didn't. And they didn't make me. And they, it's not like they paid me so much that, you know, they were like, you have to do what we say. <laughs> but, um, yeah. 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 I mean, luckily, it was fall of 2019, so I had a little time. And I was able to do a book tour, and um, you know, I was able to kind of get out there and do interviews and things like that. And I think that was, I'm glad to have had that experience. I know people who, who published novels you know, between sort of winter of 2020 into 2021, and they tried to do things on Zoom, and you know, it was really difficult. And it was difficult for all the small bookstores that, you know, are really the publicity engines. I mean, that's, you know, if you don't like social media, then go to your, go to your local bookstore and meet the buyer and, you know, talk to the people who work there. And, like, they're the people who put books in people's hands. Um, you know, that's the important thing. So, luckily, that wasn't a big... That was much more impactful on teaching for me than it was on on the novel, which was good. Um, I was grateful, at least, that I managed to squeak through. Yeah. yeah. You were a Wallace Stegner fellow. Mm -hmm. What did that mean? What did you do to become that? Or I got lucky. I got lucky. I mean, you know, I think you apply for these things. And, and now, having been a reader, um, for various like fellowships and things like that, like you understand that what happens is like maybe you know you you have whatever it takes to get to like the top 200 or something out of whatever the applicant pool is, and then after that it's just luck. Um, but the Stegner Fellowship is this. I mean, it's fabulous. There's not anything else like it, where you know you don't get a degree. It doesn't require any degree. You know, you could be an 85 year old woman who never finished high school, and you can apply for this. And you get two years of funding, and you do workshops at Stanford, and that's the only requirement. It's, I mean, there's nothing else like it. It was just, it was absolutely life-changing. Um, yeah, I do, actually. Um, oh, um, the question was, you know, did I like Wallace Stegner, which I do, um, and what other authors do I like, and who do I read? Um, there are things that I go back to a lot. Like, that's how I always answer that question. I like lots of things. Um, you know, books to me are sort of like pizza, you know? It's like, even if it's kind of bad, like, it's still fine. It's pizza, you know? Um, but the books I go back to all the time are, um, like, Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian or All the Pretty Horses which pops to mind immediately just because now he's dead. Um, which I sometimes think maybe he always wanted to be. 
Like we're we're I mean we're sad, but and and he was a great literary figure, and he always will be. But I also think he's probably like, oh, finally. Um, I always go back to um, Michael and Dante's *The English Patient*, which is a fantastic novel. Um, Marilyn Robinson's *Housekeeping* is another one. I mean, you'll notice that all of these are pretty prose-forward, arguably a little bit light on plot. So forget the answer I gave you about plot. Um, I read a lot of poetry. So I read, um, one of my favorite writers is a poet named Larry Levis, um, who wrote a lot about the California Central Valley. Um, yeah, and those are the things I go back to often. I don't, I don't have like one, some people have like one author where they're like, I read everything, you know, A to Z. I don't really have anybody quite like that, um, where I'm just willing to go anywhere with them. But, yeah. Yeah. Oh, what a good question. Um, yeah, uh, the question was, you know, when you go to these books, what are you looking for and what happens? I like the last part of the question in particular. Um, I mean, often I'm looking for like, oh, I remember that there was sort of a way that the writer sort of got me into or out of something. Like, you know, they got me into a scene or they got me out of a scene or um, there was a way that this, was, this scene was paced that I remember um, really enjoying. And I go back just to kind of look at it like a student, like how did they do this? Um, what are sort of the mechanics here? Um, I, it's also often just for pleasure, like I wanna read this section again. I, you know, I remember like, you know, in The English Patient, there's that great chapter that's just about bomb dismantling. And I love that section. Because it's kind of right in the middle of a book where you're like reading it because you want to know, like, well, is you know, Caravaggio, like, is he really this thief? Like, is he a spy? Like, you know, who's the English patient? Are Kip and Hannah gonna form a lifelong love affair, et cetera? And then Ondanche just plops in this section about dismantling bombs, and it's so good. Um, so I often go back just to read for pleasure, but I think. A, you know, a book is a friend, right? And so you have a long relationship with it. And you go back 10 years later as kind of a different person, and you wonder, like, what's the impact going to be? You know, are we still going to be able to talk about everything? Like, are we going to have a good time? We planned this trip. <laughs> you know, I hope we still like each other. And so you sort of go back, I think, to see, like, what's changed in our relationship? Yeah, anybody else? Let's go buy some books. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you all very much. Thank you.